0: This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News. Today's talk. 6.40 Toronto.
1: It's Saturdays at 5pm and it's time for your favourite show of the weekend, Tasting Together. <laughs> because we talk about all the great food and drinks in Toronto. No shade to all the other shows that air throughout the weekend. I love you all.
0: I mean, that's a bold statement. I, I Obviously, we hope that this is your favourite show, Saturdays <laughs> at 5pm. And if you're listening online, if you're listening on your smart speaker, we really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, once again, hopefully learn something and... Uh, find out what's going on in the GTA food wise.
1: Yes, absolutely. But um, moving away, I guess slightly from the GTA or the peripheries of the GTA. I know, Andre, you have some exciting news <laughs> to share about your wee <laughs> child.
0: I'm not gonna lie. I'm terrified that my uh, seven month old little girl is going to be a picky eater, and we've started her on solids, and uh, it's really kind of fascinating because like I didn't know that babies don't even know how to like swallow. So, oh. like, the, like the child's learning. Like the whole concept of like food go here, food goes into your stomach right, and this right. and that. But we've, um, we've been working on a variety of foods and I mean, there's a lot of other stuff I, I, I thought too where like I thought we'd be able to just put together like a platter with like a hundred different things. <laughs> Let Spencer taste them and like go nuts. But like um, my wife, the baby's mother, Anya, has uh, told me like, no, we can only try like new foods every three or four days because we need to monitor for allergens. So i learned something there. Right. Because, uh, you know, if you give the baby... Eggs, peanut butter, cheese, and different and spices and herbs. And she an allergic
1: reaction. You're like, I'm not sure exactly. what it is. Exactly. And then
0: you're going to have to go through it all again. But um, just keeping in mind with like, we love eating local. We've talked about how farm to table is more than a trend. Mm-hmm. It is definitely a part of the fabric of Ontario. Uh, we've started on some nice orchard fruit. But the funny thing is like, she's so young and still just learning is there's like no positive or negative reaction it's like every bit of fruit that she puts in her mouth is sort of met with the same look on her face of like skepticism
1: (laughs) well i know that uh eating peaches as you are a lover of niagara fruit that is something that you're probably going to encourage her to learn to love no matter how skeptical her face looks down the line
0: i hope so i hope so um but we are. I, I I hate to say this. We're at the point where we're starting to think about the end of summer. So if you no! missed, yeah, if you, no, but uh, if you've missed out on spending some time outside, you actually had a really. Uh, kind of tragic story that you wanted to share.
1: I did. I did. And and it's funny because it's meant to all be a really positive thing. And um, I know we all want to spend as much time as we want outdoors. And if you hear any ambient noise today is because we are both recording outside, trying to soak up a little bit of sunshine.
0: And we're tasting together. And we're
1: tasting together. <laughs> this is like one of those rare opportunities where we have the opportunity to be in the same space together. Um, one of the things I've actually still not really truly done, at least my like for myself, I've I've managed to partake in other people's organized activities is a picnic. Yeah, and it was something that was so popularized during the pandemic because we were all you know finding ways to socially distance and enjoy time outdoors. And for some strange reason, I've never adapted to it. I'm not sure if it's because like I was brought up in. And, Immigrant family household, and the idea of kind of sitting outside in the dirt was not something my parents ever wanted to do. Yeah, but this summer, one of um, Eric's best friends shared this story about how he saw this fellow walk into a park, pull out this beautiful picnic basket. This like beautiful cloth, put out like candelabras and full on porcelainware, bottles of wine, cheese, and sa- and then laid it all out, sat there, and then sat there and then sat there, and then slowly packed oh, it no. all back up, and then left the park. Oh, no! So, just one of those really tragic stories where someone clearly got stood up on a first date. Um, but the, the I guess what I was trying to take away from all of that was, oh, you can have a really nice picnic outdoors. It doesn't, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't need to be just the basics, then you can really jazz up your picnics and... I thought to myself, I wonder what can I do to make picnicking a little bit easier for me this year or for anyone who wants to go out and have a picnic? What can be made easier? Because I will tell you, I started looking around and all the things that were super accessible to me during the pandemic actually seem to have gone the way of the highway. I remember uh, bottle shops being able selling like fully finished picnic, picnic basket. Yeah. like picnic basket and all and I was like this is what I needed I needed the wicker basket I needed the blanket I needed all the cheeses and stuff done for me but I'm not really seeing that um I did a really quick search and then the the, the closest thing that showed up was Yelp giving me I guess like when someone look up picnic basket yeah um they shout out Cote Du Boeuf uh Grand Cru Deli and the Cheese Boutique but that's it
0: that sounds about right. I, I think I'm in agreement with you. Here, here's the thing: I'm not a fan of picnics. Why? And, and I think I think we're gonna see the theme of the show because this is like the the outdoor show.
1: <laughs> we were are gonna be focusing a lot
0: on, on eating outdoor with this. It's um, I'm fully domesticated. <laughs> I, I I am not someone who really pines for the great outdoors. If for me the the best idea of camping would be. A beautiful cottage with white linen, so I can spend the day fishing or being outside. But as long as I have somewhere nice and comfortable to go back to, the thing is with picnicking, I need a table to eat, like to put a plate together and do that. And the whole idea of like juggling a plate with one hand or sitting it on the ground on the blanket is just like I just find picnics terribly inconvenient.
1: So it's funny because I did think about that, which is probably one of the reasons why originally I was not really into picnics. But when I experienced my first picnic on a proper big blanket, the blanket is like your table. The floor is your table and there's a blanket so the ants don't crawl all over it. <laughs> and then you get to sit there and be at one with nature. Although I wonder if there are like cute little folding tables where you can sit on the ground and then like pop up a little folding table. See, but then
0: you're then you're just doing a lot more work, you know? And it's just like the concept of like, okay, fine, like I'll do a picnic at a picnic table if there's picnic tables there. Just like the whole concept, like you said, like putting the big blanket out and the candelabra. I, I realize this is this is me. I mean, uh, you can if you want to at me on Instagram and tell me how nuts I am, at Andre Weinerview, I'm more than happy to have someone convince me that picnics are actually like wonderful. And <laughs> there's definitely a romantic notion of them, but it's just like, I don't know.
1: I guess the setup can be hard, but I guess once it's all done, that's what makes it so wonderful. I remember when I was... Uh, vacationing in Cape Cod with my with Eric's family, I saw people like have like fires going on the beach, and they mm-hmm. brought coolers. They even brought a ping pong table, and they were playing like beer pong all day, which was a little extra for me. But I was like, hey, once it's set up, and if you're there for seven hours, that seems like a great day to spend outside. Okay, and, I got you.
0: Yeah. I, I, okay, I, sign me up for that. But I'm not the one bringing the ping pong table, nor am I (laughs) the one setting it up, but I will play at your fully set up ping pong table.
1: That's fair. It also reminds me in Montreal, it seems like the, you know, al fresco at times outside is done a lot more frequently. And I think it's because they have a little bit laxer regulations. Um, but you know, like they had like barbecues and grills going, which I thought was quite exceptional. And it was the same as in Germany, like in Germany, that kind of outdoor living. And I-, I wonder if it's like a matter of we just need better access to easy setup. Like maybe they have better kits, like better outdoor barbecue kits, better things that you can bring. Whereas here, like I said, for me to look up, Uh, A kind of curated, pre-done picnic basket seems quite difficult to access. Well, I I,
0: I do think there is a cultural aspect. I think it is one of the problems of living in in Canada. And and here's the thing. We're fortunate to live in Toronto, where we do have longer falls and earlier springs than most other parts of the country. But growing up in Saskatchewan, like really Mm -hmm. regular picnic season would be from June till September. Like even May has cold chilly fall uh, chilly um you know late spring mornings and evenings so like it gets cool in the evenings a lot earlier than it does in ontario and same thing with like we can still have dinners outside in october and fine we might need uh might need a hoodie or just some extra layers to stay out like past 8 p.m in october but like you know i I just i don't think it's part of our, our culture to do that eating on a picnic blanket. That's why patios are so popular in the spring. The first day, it's above 15 degrees. We're ready to rock, right? Yeah,
1: someone else does it all for us. Well, if anyone has picnic tips to help someone like myself who doesn't picnic enough or to convince Andre who clearly doesn't picnic at all, Mm-mm. you can always dial into the station at 416-966-7280 or you can always add us at Andre Ryan Review or myself at 9 Ounces Please to share all your hot, hot, hot tips because I personally want to do a little bit of picnicking.
0: I look forward to hearing about how unpleasant the experience was. And speaking of, I know we just <laughs> talked about my domestication earlier in the segment. You just came back from a camping trip that was far off, far more off the grid than I would ever be comfortable doing. But you have some uh, opinions to share about your culinary experience from the bush.
1: Yes. Yeah, so stick around. We'll be talking about backcountry camping and the tasty eats we get to enjoy, or not, on Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news today's talk. Six forty
0: Toronto. Welcome back. I am Andre Prue,
1: and I'm Maroki Tong.
0: And uh, I we alluded to right before the break. You just went camping, but we're not talking about glamping. Not we're not glamping. talking about like you in a Muskoka cottage, <laughs> a palatial <laughs> Cl- Muskoka cottage. We're not even talking about like you being in an RV and experiencing the open road. You went portaging.
1: I went portaging. So this is not even car camping. You can't even just go to your car if you're missing something. This is us paddling up the lakes of Algonquin, landing, and then picking up our canoes and all our packs and carrying it to our campsite. There is no toilet there. We use the trowel to dig a hole if you need to go number
0: two. Oh, that's graphic. But <laughs> I, think, I think it does just paint the picture. I'm not going to lie. That, that just sounds awful. Was it awful? <laughs>
1: um, my, my friend likes to describe it. My friend who loves these trips, he does a lot of kind of like backcountry mountaineering. We actually did Tonkin Valley together in 2019. Five days fully off the grid, pack in, pack out, everything. Um, he describes it as type B fun. He says type A fun is when you enjoy it in the moment. Type B fun is that you kind of hate it, but it tells really great stories
0: afterwards. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to stick to my type A fun. (laughs) (laughs) No, but but okay, but you know what? Uh, Listening to you plan for this trip and and having you come back, uh, it did bring back a lot of memories from my childhood. Um, My family, we never had a lot of money growing up, but my parents always found a way to make sure that we had um, time to take a vacation, sometimes two vacations in the summer and we would go camping. And this is the same thing too. I think this is probably the reason why I'm not a big fan of it is uh, me and my brother will often joke now that we're adults about the fact that we were basically uh, cheap labor for my dad to set up the campsite the way he wanted <laughs> it to be, you know, hauling firewood, hauling water to and from, but like we were in tents, we were in air mattresses on the floor more times than I can remember, uh, camping in torrential downpour, so reading Archie comics in a tent covered by a tarp hoping that the water doesn't seep in but I do have very 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 fond memories of what it tastes like to eat a perfectly cooked steak off of a wood fire
1: um there's no perfectly cooked steak uh, for our kind of camping so that already sounds a lot more glamping than what <laughs> I normally experience Andre actually it's interesting because I feel like I've done the polar opposite like I've done the such bare minimum, like what's the bare minimum does it take to keep me alive okay. over a weekend? Well, I mean that- we
0: talked about how you survived in Chicago during uh uh was it Gen Con?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that one, at least you have access to things. And we went out and had a good dinner at the end of the day, (laughs) which is very different than like, this is literally what I'm going to do to survive for the next five days, especially if you're camping and camping out, you have to carry everything on your back. Now, with portaging, it's a little bit easier because even if we have a lot of heavy loads, um, unless you're doing long portages, which we did not do for this trip because my friend was bringing his nine-year-old daughter for her first camp. So obviously, we weren't going to be portaging long, long, long distances. Is we were able to pack a bit heavier so we were able to leave things on the bottom of the boat we're not actually carrying it on our backs versus when we were in the mountains you really don't want to go over 35 40 45 pounds on your back because you're carrying it for 20 kilometers yep. up and down the mountains so you're packing the lightest the lightest pots the lightest foods these are the, like this is the kind of camping where when you're when you're buying the the pots and pans you're actually like shaving off 200 grams 300 grams at a time trying to find the lightest equipment that you can haul on your back because it could literally make or break you
0: well shaving those grams i mean you surely save some room for like a nice porterhouse to to bring (laughs) with you like i just i don't understand
1: no no we we have um food in a bag and this is like the difference between car camping and backcountry camping because when we did car camping in 2020 um eric did do that he brought uh i can't oh my god i'm already forgetting the name but it's this chicken dish that he really likes making that his family used to take camping, and you marinate all the chicken in advance, and then you bring it and then you're cooking it over a wood fire, which is absolutely delicious. We're bringing dehydrated meals
0: interesting in
1: like um in basically a pre-made sealed bag you boil water and they have all these different flavors now they even have desserts you can buy like mudslide desserts but and they even bring like breakfast eggs and there's like chicken curry or mac and cheese but it's just all dehydrated meal in a bag and you boil water and just pour it in the bag kind of like instant noodles
0: were they good
1: Uh, I think the the better answer is after a long day of hiking, anything tastes delicious because you just need those calories to enter your body.
0: Okay. Well, maybe let me ask you a question because we are in an interesting time of year, like chanterelle mushrooms are are out in full force. Uh, And if you go back to earlier this summer, we talked a bit about foraging, Um, just talking about the best and safe ways to look for delicious things in the wilds of nature. Did you get a chance to do any foraging or were you too busy paddling?
1: Uh, Too busy paddling, like, the thing about portaging is that you spend so much time in the water, it's not that you really have that much opportunity to forage, and admittedly, I'm still very much, like, not an expert forager, so picking a mushroom that may or may not give me, like... like hallucinations
0: or kill you yeah or kill me
1: (laughs) is not something I wanted to test out however when I did backcountry camping in Tonkin Valley we did grab some wild uh, blueberries or strawberries on occasion nice now we were
0: like those always always taste better than even even when you go to a fruit scent and you see like the perfectly manicured wild blueberries or wild strawberries there's nothing that tastes better than just grabbing it like right off the forest floor and having a chance to eat it as long as you know exactly what they are and you're foraging safely remember to forage safely people yes
1: well now the biggest thing is when we were foraging for berries there weren't that many left because we were there around September and that's when the bears have essentially had their fill uh-huh, of the berries uh-huh, so, uh-huh. and when bears eat berries they're not plucking them off the no. bush that we are they're eating like the whole freaking bush Yeah, there's only like just no bush left and then sometimes for sanitary reasons you're not sure if there's bear dung or bear scat like around the berries so yeah. you're not sure if you're necessarily going to eat con- you know something that's been contaminated
0: I mean that's all fascinating to, to hear to um, to think about like like planning the um, the wait I th- and, and this is one Again, where I think that I would have a hard time doing this, I I would be the guy that would have snuck a snuck a stake or two in and just force myself to carry it there. I mean, it's the other thing too, like talking about, about proteins, like the stuff that you had to think about. You've talked about bears. So you yeah. did have to factor in, even with dehydrated food, making sure you had safe storage. Yes, and
1: everything needs to be in scent-free storage. When we did the mountains, it was probably the most risky um, yeah. because it was like high foraging and bears wanting, you know, they're hungry, they're kind of filling in their last fill. We were very lucky that we were there, you know, the way my friend said, is like the bears are at their like fattest right now. So they're slow and they're not really as hungry. If oh, they'll still chase you down. You There's, can't outrun a bear. No, that's it. And if they're hungry enough, the biggest thing is that bears are curious. So we were oh. in Algonquin Park, and they have a very healthy black bear population, and they're known to be curious, and they're known to scavenge. So we put things in what they're called bear barrels. Okay. So they're essentially like, they look like a barrel. They're plastic. They're hard plastic. And they're once you seal the lid on, they should essentially be mostly scent-free. But you even set those far, far away from the camp because bears' noses are exceptional. Yeah. So this is one of those things. This is another reason why you might not want to be bringing a porterhouse steak on the back with you because the bears are going to smell that a million miles away and they're going to come because they're going to be like, "That smells delicious. I too would love some porterhouse steak." And you don't want that on your back when they're coming.
0: I'd fight a bear for my steak.
1: Uh yeah. I think the bear would win.
0: I think you're probably right. <laughs> no, that's. I mean, that's really cool to hear. So I mean, okay. So out of the dehydrated meals, like, where do you where do you buy these? And and, and I know you said like everything tastes delicious but there must have been a highlight or two out of what you what you bought that you could recommend to the listeners that if you are deciding to do the like off the grid camping and you want to make sure you're bringing something delicious this is where you need to get There's many get. yeah
1: there's many many different brands I've seen them for sale even at surplus stores um I oh will gee, admit, so like
0: military rations Yeah yeah
1: military rations and I I admittedly was a bit snobby and I kind of looked at them and they looked at me in their very very plain bag and I was a little bit afraid of what was inside of it Gotcha um You can get them at like Bass Pro Mill shops or like um, any of the mountain, like mountain warehouse or Emek shops, essentially. I tend to like ones that are kind of chock full of flavor, so to say. So instead of kind of doing like the fake fettuccine Alfredo business, I'm going to go for like the Kathmandu curry dish or something that has a lot of spices, a lot of salt so that it kind of masks perhaps like the more engineered quality of it once you pour the water in. Uh, I, I, it's funny because we're, we're doing this in person. Like I said earlier, and you're giving me the face.
0: I'm, I am, I'm taking it all in.
1: <laughs> and you know, our breakfasts are usually an instant coffee and an instant oatmeal.
0: I do like instant oatmeal. There, so there I'll go. give you that. I'll give you that. Instant oatmeal is, is delicious. Uh, I'll give a shout out to the, the Quaker, uh, low sugar apple cinnamon is like the perfect, balance
1: (laughs) there you have it i I
0: would survive off that i think
1: yes (laughs) andre surviving on nothing but instant oatmeal the entire trip
0: all right all right so we're we're gonna come back after the break uh we're gonna bring it back to the city uh there's another food festival taking place that uh i think is flying under the radar it's certainly not as popular as some of the big ones everybody knows about but i am really excited to check this one out
1: so don't go away, folks. We'll be back right after this break to chat about what's happening on August twenty fifth to twenty seventh on Tasting Together. This is six forty Toronto.
0: Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news today's talk. Six forty Toronto. I, I know this is the second time that we've said this, Maroki Tong, but we really are getting to the very end of summer, so it's time. Stop
1: talking like that.
0: It's time to soak in all the summer festivals. Get get your calendar full. You know, that September 20th is coming. Kids are going back to school. Sorry. Oh, my goodness. Um, But there is another food festival that I actually did not know about until you uh, sent me the email, which is like, hey, we we should talk about this. And I was just like, yes. Yes, we should, because I really, really love Korean food.
1: It's actually funny that we haven't talked too much about festivals during the summer. I know we've spoken about a number of the festivals coming up in the early springtime. And maybe it's because I've been on the road all summer, but I've not really had the opportunity to just sit down and enjoy what's going on in my own city. So I'm really excited about this one coming up. And I will say, admit to you, I actually feel kind of bad that I wasn't aware of this festival either because I used to live in that neighborhood. So it's happening up in North York. It's the Toronto Korean festival and it's happening from August 25th to 27th. And it looks like they're celebrating all things, Korean culture. So there's a lot of highlights that they have been really spotlighting from, you know, like K-pop, K-pop dances or Korean culture and Taekwondo and singing and, and their dance forms. However, I am super um, intrigued and excited about all the food vendors that's going to be there.
0: Me me too. But also just a quick note, if you don't know what K-pop is, Ask your kids, they'll probably explain to you who BTS are.
1: I know, I grew up with K-pop and I listened to it and it still wasn't as big as it is now. And I actually kind of, I kind of dig it. I love seeing, um, you know, what was considered a subculture in North America really take the entire uh, nation by storm.
0: Oh, it's fascinating to see, like, when people are singing in not English and just, you know, a, a real international appeal that people can have. Anyways, this isn't a music show. It's a food show. And speaking of international appeal, I mean, I'm sure it's divisive for a lot of people in the car, but I was really excited to see that they're going to have like a kimchi experience at their Taste of Korea with the food vendors.
1: Oh, I think that's extremely awesome that they're doing that because I think, uh, you know, this is one of the things that you and I spoke a little bit about leading up to this segment is that Korean food is very limited in the North American market and, and it's not just Korea too, right? Like I can say the same thing about uh, Japanese food, Chinese food We all tend to kind of hone in on one really specific dish And then one that's did, or, all or we like know Or like style of
0: cuisine And yeah. and I mean, to be fair I think when we're talking about Korean food Like it's a lot of Korean barbecue And it's fun There's an interactive thing cooking at the table It's delicious Like I understand why this has kind of risen in popularity right like it's not saying that there aren't other delicious options but like it makes sense that that something that unique but also that delicious would be the one thing that really takes over right
1: yeah but i guess it like limits what people think of is a particular culture's cuisine one of the things i really had the opportunity to experience was years ago i did visit seoul korea and i was mind blown by the diversity of the cuisines that i got to experience um when i was there and i haven't really seen a lot of it in toronto since coming back and the Mm -hmm. difficulty is not speaking korean it was hard for me to memorize what those dishes were so i could even Mm -hmm. try and ask for them in a restaurant right like i only really have this distant memory of one rice dish that i thought was exceptional where they basically stir fry the rice right at your table you pick the ingredients and they stir fry it it's has kind of like it starts with like a s- kind of sound and that's all i've got that's literally <laughs> all i've got and i feel really really sad and i'm probably going to have to do a little bit of research but um going back to that kimchi experience i think that's great because we are also used to seeing kimchi as this kind of red pickled spicy cabbage but there's usually dozens upon dozens of different types yep. of kimchi out there made with different vegetables different types of pickling
0: as as everyone in listening to the show knows i'm i uh fancy myself a bit of a a good home cook um my favorite thing to do with ramps like the first uh you know sort of signs of spring in ontario when the fresh produce starts to come in i make a really good kimchi with ramps and it's very like pungent flavorful spicy it really takes some of the edge off of the like onionness of the of the ramps Mm um which the other thing too like It's exactly like you said. I I have a really great cookbook called Koreatown. I I hate that I can't remember the name of the author right now, but uh, the author talks about how in his household, kimchi isn't just a a noun. It's a verb as well, that you can kimchi anything. You make a kimchi base, you can kimchi cucumber, you can kimchi uh, carrots, you can kimchi, um, you know, obviously the the Napa cabbage that everyone knows and loves. Uh, I love Icon kimchi. So I I think... um, if kimchi is your jam, this is definitely be something to check out.
1: It's also one of those things that's like every single household has their own signature kimchi. And when you visit restaurants, if you compliment their kimchi, there's going to be uh, like, a you know, a little lady in the back or a man in the back being very, very proud and very, very excited. And we'll probably scoop you a lot more kimchi on the house and that was actually my very first experience on a cold winter day in Seoul. Oh kimchi
0: in the winter is perfect.
1: But one of the other things I wanted to kind of call attention to is that they're doing a chicken and beer makuli garden uh, which I think is so cool because I think one of the things that we don't talk a lot about is the street food culture of Korea and they have a pretty epic street food culture and Fried chicken is one of them. Well, street and
0: bar food, like, uh, the the whole concept of what is it, izakaya, that's become quite popular, which is Japanese. Like, you've seen a lot of restaurants in that style really pop up, but it's also really prevalent in Korea as well. And Korean fried chicken, oh, man, if you've never... Had that. That was actually one of the signature uh, dishes that David Chang, when he uh, started Momofuku, was really hanging mm. his hat on. Was really kind of a North American hybrid mm-hmm. uh, on on his take of the of the, the Korean style of fried chicken. But we're starting to see more and more of them popping up. And I think this is um, we're at the beginning of a trend because like fried chi- fried chicken, fried chicken is delicious. I think from anywhere. I've never met a fried chicken that I didn't like. But there's just something unique about Korean fried chicken. Uh, You know, often there's a little bit of potato starch in the breading, which makes things taste a little different than just uh, dredging and flour. Um, And obviously, like beer is a big part of the culture, too.
1: It's all the different flavors. And it's the idea that you can just get it from a little stand walking down the street in a cute little bucket in a nice nice proportion, um, a nice portion that you can take away with you. But um, beer obviously is always an awesome pairing. But the other one that uh, I like that they called attention to is makgeolli. And makgeolli was a drink that I really fell in love with in Korea and then couldn't really get access to in Canada for a while. It is available now. Um, You can find it at some Korean spots. And I'm sure occasionally the LCBO carries it. I just struggle a little bit because in Seoul, I could pay $3 and basically walk away with a giant pop Bottle-sized thing of makgeolli, so it's a sparkling rice wine. It's a little bit sweet. It's about six, seven percent alcohol. So delicious, you know, just a little bit of zip, a little bit of tanginess, zing. Um, and like I said, they literally sell it in plastic pop bottles. If you bought it without knowing, you would think you maybe bought like a soda, not realizing it's alcoholic because you can pick it right up from your convenience store.
0: Well, I mean, this is the thing too, where we're big proponents of responsible consumption. But, you know, reading between the lines here, Korean culture is a culture that really likes to drink and likes to party.
1: They really do like to drink and like to party. I know we make, you know, I'm sure we've all heard the joke about soju and soju is the drink that puts us flat on our backs.
0: I've, I, I drink responsibly, but I had an experience with soju. Um, So this this is why we talk about like Korean culture being prevalent in other places. I experienced kimchi in Japan. And Japan mm. and Korea have a, a complicated history, but there are a ton of Korean restaurants in Japan, but it's also very similar to what Korean food is prevalent in Toronto. There were a lot of Korean barbecue places, both in Tokyo and in, in rural Japan. But anyways, I had a chance to consume a fair bit of soju. I was in my early 20s when I took this trip. Mm-hmm. Be careful when you're drinking soju.
1: I, I think it's so interesting because soju, uh, like in terms of its ABV levels, is really not much more than wine. So I still find <laughs> it really strange that people get affected that the way that it does. Because in the end, it's un, you know, it's it's essentially the same. Uh, alcohol content as drinking wine. I don't know if it's because people drink it faster. They tend to usually flavor it, so like with peach or pear, so it's sweet. Yeah, it's sweet you can drink a lot of it, and people drink it straight out of the bottle when they buy from the convenience stores when they're going out to party. That it was actually what kind of shocked me, because here we're used to seeing it in a shot glass or at least served in smaller proportions. There, they're drinking it just straight out of the bottle as like, that's their single serving. So
0: now let's combine that with the fact that. I was in my early 20s, and I think that closes the loop on how soju affects people the way it does.
1: Yeah, that's fair. And I <laughs> admittedly am not much of a soju drinker, although I've had some barrel-aged soju, which um, kind of gets the same treatment as spirit, and I I did appreciate that. Very much. So I guess I like drinking the craft of it. But Makuli, on the other hand, is lower in alcohol. It's a little bit creamier, a little bit milkier. And like I said, it's a sparkling rice wine. And I just thought that's such a unique product. And I like that they're highlighting that as part of their chicken and beer tent.
0: You know, I really hope that we see festivals like this grow because I know earlier in the spring, like we were quite critical of some of the uh, the frontline festivals that are just like shoulder to shoulder people. It's the wait in line festival, not the go and enjoy the food festival. And frankly, I think there's room in Toronto for a lot more festivals like this. There's so many cultural diasporas in the city that, uh, you know, it'd be nice to see other ones added to this and hopefully they'll grow. So we see something, you know. Maybe Taste of Korea or sorry, the the Toronto K-Fest will be as big as Taste of the Danforth in a few years.
1: Yeah, I would hope so. And I would like to I like the idea that they're integrating not just food, but other elements of their culture. So like I said, the Taekwondo, the music experiences, I personally will mostly be there for the food, but that doesn't mean I'm not uh, a fan of kind of one culture just showing everything that they've got.
0: Well, there we go. Speaking of uh, cultural element, we're bringing it back home in the next segment on Canada Day. uh, We did a cross Canada look at what's happening in the wine industry from Nova Scotia to BC, but we're bringing it back to Nova Scotia when we visit uh, one wine, one type of wine in specific. You'll have to stay tuned to find out what that is. On
1: 640 Toronto, this is Tasting Together.
0: You're listening to Tasting Together, Toronto's news. Today's talk 640 Toronto.
1: We're moving to the East Coast today on Tasting Together, and I'm Maroki Tong. I'm joined, as always, by Andre Pru, and now our favorite anchor from the Global Newsroom, Danny Longo. Oh,
0: I'm the favorite. Thank you. It's great to be here. We'll make sure we send the memo to Dave Bradley as well. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we love Dave. So yeah, Not as much as we love you, though. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> so as you folks all know, we have the opportunity to truly taste together in the same space today in the glorious yeah. summer outdoors, and uh, we were very fortunate that after Canada Day, Wines of Nova Scotia wanted to reach out to us and share a little bit more love about what's being made out in the
0: east. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a big, uh, a big fan of what we're about to do. Because um, I've very publicly on past podcasts, other writing that I've done, I'm not a fan of those firm wine and food tastings. I'm not a fan of the rules, red, red meat with red wines, white meat with white wines. Right. And I, I know from my personal experience, and, and obviously everyone's experience is, is different, but I find it so rare that you get that perfect wine that goes with the perfect dish. But the Tidal Bay wines from the East Coast of Nova Scotia um, are just, they're made to go with seafood. And, and, and this is one of the, those rare wines Where we actually have six bottles on the table In front of us, we are tasting, we are not Drinking, so everything has been done responsibly mm-hmm. And carefully, but um, I think we're just going to break down a little bit About what Tidal Bay is uh, You know, as always, take some measured shots at the LCBO that there should be some more of these wines on the shelf. Uh, and I'm Absolutely. sure with Nova Scotia too, like it's, it's such a new wine region, there's probably not a ton for export, but it'd be nice if uh, as consumers, we could order them a little easier. Uh, Doug Ford, if you're listening to the radio right now, you could change those laws too. Um, but yeah, so we've got six bottles of Tidal Bay in front of us, which is Nova Scotia's signature white wine.
1: I think it's so cool that they have really managed to um, create a, an appellation series, so yeah. to say. Right, let's say that these are Tidal Bay wines. And for those of you who are a little bit newer to wine, apple, you know, like if you really get deep diving into wines, a lot of it is exploring where the wine comes from. I'm sure you've seen the word terroir battered around a few bit, a little bit, and a lot of like what Tidal Bay is is about that sense of terroir. This is showing you where the wines come from, where the region is. And I find it incredible that they managed to do this, given that in Ontario, we still haven't really managed to develop an Appalachian series across Niagara or Prince Edward County or even just like the sub-regions of yeah, Niagara. Yeah, we, we
0: don't we don't have a signature wine of Ontario. I, and I've often said too, like it's the, the double-edged sword of the versatility of our climate that in like a banging hot year like 2020, we can make Bordeaux-style wines and in a cooler year you know our burgundy varieties and rieslings tend to sing a little bit louder in the in the choir where you know, it's it's something that Nova Scotia has really done like right out of the gates. They're, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're, they're staking their reputation a little bit on sparkling wine. We're starting to hear things about Chardonnay, but Tidal Bay is the loudest voice in their choir.
1: Yeah, and so before I get into the, the nerdy notes, because I did pull them up on my phone. Oh. Dan e have you had Tidal Bay wines before?
0: I have title. I've have had Tidal Bay while I was out east. Um, didn't get to go out to the. Uh, Appalachian region unfortunately I was very much uh, hoping to do that and I Will do that the next time I'm out there for sure But uh, yeah it's just a, a Refreshing light White wine you yep. have yep. to have in the summer And it's low alcohol yeah. Um, yeah, Like really bright citrus And, and uh, high acid
1: Yeah and this is one of those I, I love That you're saying all these things Andre because Um Uh, Folks have heard of us in the past um, Andre has thrown a lot of shade Towards hybrid grapes I knew where
0: you were going with this
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and 51% of Tidal Bays must be made with either Lacadie Blanc, Seval Blanc, Vidal, or a Geisenheim 318 very specifically. And that's all hybrid grapes.
0: One of them would be very familiar if you're a fan of Ontario wine, and that's Vidal, which is usually reserved for ice wine, mm-hmm. but it's very clear from the bottles in front of us. makes makes very tasty table wine.
1: Yes. And then the other 49% can be any <laughs> sort of medley. List? Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, uh, Chasselas. I've never heard of that one before. Sweet- Ortega. Uh, sorry,
0: um, Swiss Grape.
1: Okay, Siegfried, um, Osceola, Muscat, Frontenac Gris, Frontenac Vent, Petit Milo, and Cayuga. So quite a bit of number of hybrids there, but a number of uh, vinifera as well, like Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris. And there you have it, that's Tidal Bay. So um, I'm assuming Uh, they only make a white, not a red. Yes,
0: there is no red. Um, And and something that's also fascinating, which I think is is great given that we're a Toronto-based show, is the timeline of Tidal Bay that they have on the Wines of Nova Scotia website is 2009 is the beginning of Tidal Bay. Peter Gamble pitches the concept of a uniquely Nova Scotia white wine. Peter Gamble is not some big Nova Scotian bigwig in the wine industry. He is actually one of the understated heroes of the Ontario wine industry. Uh, He is a consulting winemaker at a lot of the really great wineries in Niagara, but he's also not a big fan of the spotlight. Um, I've interviewed him a couple of times, so I'm happy to raise Peter's profile, even though... uh, He's not usually quick to step into the spotlight. So an Ontarian is actually partly responsible for these wines that are in front of us.
1: Huh. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is I know you mentioned that it was low alcohol, but apparently you, the maximum permitted alcohol to be displayed on the label has to be 11%. So oh, okay. they're designed
0: to be low. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which is interesting because that really then is leaning heavily into saying that it is a fruit food friendly wine. Yep. I, and this is an interesting thing because, you know, when you talk about it, wines should be like that this particular wine is great with seafood. One thing I have noticed tasting Nova Scotian wines is I do detect a lot more salinity. When tasting these wines, um, I, it's not a tidal bay, but the Benjamin Bridge Brew, because um, Benjamin Bridge does t- kind of hail themselves as a sparkling wine house. Mm-hmm. I remember drinking this and saying to myself, "This is what mermaids would drink." If this is wine, <laughs> it's, like, it's like salty, and seaweedy, and so delicious. It would pair beautifully with oysters. And I, and if there's any time for me to kind of say like there's terroir involved, I would say like you really taste the maritimes in in, in these wines. And I, I honestly don't know how it all gets there.
0: I I mean, that's the magic about this. Like I said, like at the beginning of the segment, I talked about how for the large part of, I think, wine and food pairings being a certain amount of, of, of garbage, which is what I love about this. Because this question, as a wine writer, I've been doing this for a long time, so I've formed some strong opinions. And when I get something like this, I'm happy when I can be served something that changes my mind. You know, like you said, it's got the salinity, it's got bright fruit flavors, it's got crisp acid, like it literally is that you close your eyes and you can almost picture yourself sitting on the East Coast with either a fish fish fry taking place Mm -hmm. or some cedar planked Atlantic salmon or doing a lobster boil. Like You can literally imagine these things going together. I love that you nailed the salinity on this as well. Mm
1: -hmm. And Danny, I'm going to throw this one back to you Mm -hmm. because uh, I know Andre and I have come from two very different parties when discussing debating hybrids and I would say that you were kind (laughs) of like the neutral third party who had to kind of... (laughs) (laughs) balance us out. So tasting these and knowing that they are predominantly made of hybrid grapes, like what are your impressions on it?
0: I think they're like, for the most part, I enjoyed every single one of these wines that we tasted. um, And I enjoyed them all. And to me, it doesn't matter if it's a regular grape or a hybrid grape. If it tastes good, it tastes good. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, that's the thing too. Like as someone who has been a hybrid skeptic, this is the one thing too, though, where most of the hybrids we're dealing with in Ontario, Baco Noir, Marquette, you know, uh, a handful of other ones that are are working their way up. it, it's just we've got so so much attention on the red hybrid wines that I'm, I'm curious uh, as to whether or not we maybe want to start experimenting some more with some white. We do,
1: though. We do. So this is one of those, you know, you know me, my entire mission and mandate is giving some love to underrated regions. So in Ontario, okay. I really like exploring the Georgian Bay Area, the Great mm-hmm. County Area. And they're actually doing a lot of Lacadine, Save Al Blanc up there. Now, the thing is, is that I find I'm not quite sure how they're doing it in Nova Scotia, but there's a freshness and a brightness to these wines that I haven't tasted in a lot of hybrid right, whites in Ontario, even if it's the same variety. I've, I've said to you before we went- Could
0: just be cooler climate, right?
1: Could be just cooler climate. Like maybe it's just not bringing out this kind of oiliness that's and perfuminess that sometimes does show up in hybrid whites.
0: Well, okay, so the way grapes ripen, and, and this is like we talked about earlier, but what happens in Ontario is- is when you get to this part of the summer, the late August, like this is where the magic really takes place in the vineyards. Is the sugars start to go up, and you need a certain amount of sugar to make, to, um, to make wine and to make it. And alcohol is not usually the driving factor behind what most people do in the vineyard to uh, make great wine. But you also look for balance of acid and sugar, and then also taste to make sure the grapes are phenolically ripe. So I, I would imagine the climate, even in the Georgian Bay in the summer, and, and look at how hot, even though it's been kind mm-hmm. of a crappy, rainy summer, how hot it gets in Georgian Bay versus if you're sitting next to the seaside uh, on um, in, in the Amherst Valley in Nova Scotia, like you probably have some nice uh, temperature control and uh, climate mitigation from the ocean. You know? Yeah. I mean, we sure. had, that's something for us to dig into. We'll have to ask. Uh, we'll have to ask our, our our wonderful contacts at the Wines of Nova Scotia that were kind enough to provide us with these wines.
1: Absolutely. And right now, I'm kind of angry that there isn't a giant plate of oysters <laughs> <laughs> as well, because this would go so perfectly, and I have been craving oysters. All right, all right, all right.
0: So, so the Benjamin Bridge Tidal bay, which is on the table, that uh, let's put our hands up. Did all three of us enjoy that one? Yes, we did. Yes. Definitely one of the stronger ones on the table. You can get that at the LCBO. Gasparo Vineyards Tidal Bay White also available At the LCBO right now But there are only A handful of bottles I see the the day That we're recording this That it's um, It's limited So you might not Be able to get it Danny any final thoughts On Tidal Bay Before we uh, cut the tape Uh, Just if you're looking For an option If you're looking For a light Easy to drink White wine A blend And you don't mind blends And you're not looking For a specific grape Pick one up It is definitely Well worth it
1: One should never mind A blend Because if you're Drinking Bordeaux It's almost always A blend
0: Right perfect way to end the show. So stick around for next week at five o'clock. We're going to dive into what's happening in Toronto, all the delicious eats, all the delicious drinks. This has been Tasting Together on
1: 640 Toronto.